0: The whole trip took about three weeks, and it wasn't legal for me to come here, but I just thought that that's what people had to do to come to the United States. Just come by land and like, it was very, very difficult, like traveling through Guatemala, through Mexico, crossing like all the small towns, all, all the cities. We had a guide, a person that was guiding us. So we just kept going from car to car, from bus to bus.
1: We were gonna cross the desert my mom, my brother, and I alone. Because once you reach the Mexico and the U.S. border, the person that brings you just leaves you on the other side. He stays in Mexico, and then you have to figure out your way here.
2: That was Angelica Marino Mohe and Brian Torres. Both Angelica and Brian are from El Salvador. As children, they came to the U.S. illegally, and on this podcast, they'll talk about their journeys here and about the challenges of being undocumented. Hi, I'm John Vosey, executive producer of Words in Transit, a project of New England Public Radio. This podcast is being offered in conjunction with the release of a book of the same name, published by the University of Massachusetts Press. Our goal was to bring the national conversation on immigration home to our community here in western Massachusetts and to shift the discussion from an abstract debate about immigration policies to stories of individuals that have traveled to the United States from around the world. When we launched Words in Transit in 2014, immigration was a major news story. Little did we know that two years later it would be an international crisis and a significant election issue, particularly for those like Brian and Angelica that came to this country as undocumented. Here's Tema Silk, the managing director of Words in Transit, to introduce Angelica and Brian.
3: Angelica's and Brian's stories have a good deal in common. Both involve terrifying escapes, and daunting obstacles once here in the United States. Both are also tributes to the power of education to help dreamers find their way in this country. Angelica Marina Monge was 10 years old when she, her mother, and her older brother fled El Salvador. A baby brother was too young to undertake the trip and stayed back with a grandmother. Angelica vividly recalls the agony of leaving him behind. She also recounts her family's traumatic walk through the desert in the dead of night. Angelica lived here illegally for much of her adolescence until passage of the DACA Act, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Here's Angelica's story.
1: We left because of the gangs in El Salvador, also because my mom is a single mother. She couldn't raise three kids on her own. She had two businesses in El Salvador, but it wasn't enough to raise us. So she decided to come here. Her sister let her borrow the money. The day we left, the whole family got together. My grandmother was there, my aunt was there, my cousins. Pretty much, you know, the close family members were there. And my mom just decided to bring my older brother and I and leave my little brother behind because at the time he was four years old, so he was too young for um, to travel. I was 10. My brother was 11. My mom couldn't tell my little brother that we were coming here. She told him that he was gonna go on vacation with my grandmother for a few days, for a few weeks. And I didn't see him for nine years after that. We had an arrangement with a coyote, which is a person that brings you here, like a smuggler. Um, And my mom had to pay a lot of money for that. And we know it was risky course we know we could die on the way here we were gonna cross the desert my mom my brother and I alone because once you reach the Mexico and the US border the um, the person that brings you just leaves you on the other side he stays in Mexico and then you have to figure out your way here from there we walked for hours we got here and then we tried to check in into a hotel but they told us that we couldn't because we didn't have any papers So we had to go back and get caught by immigration. And when we were going back, it was really dark. It was really cold, and you can hear animals. So, of course, my brother and I were just crying. My mom didn't know what to do. And then when we were just sitting, there was an immigration truck, and they found us. So they took us in, and they processed us. And one of the um, immigration officers told my mom that she was stupid for risking our lives, you know, to bring us here. My mom couldn't stop crying. We were separated from her, but we can still hear everything that they were telling her. And then they asked us questions like, is she really your mom? Why are you here? Why are you with her? Those are questions that when you're 10 or 11, you they're shocking. You know, when someone tells you that maybe she's not really your mom, how can they do that to you? And they kept us in a room for a few hours in a really cold room, and then they let us go. Back then, they would let you stay for a year, and then you had the choice whether to go to the court or not. And my mom was afraid that if we went to court to plead our case, we'll get deported. So we never went. I didn't want to go to school. I was was depressed. I cried. You know my mom tried to tell me that it was what we, but my older brother and I were here for. She was here to work. But we were here for an education. And I I didn't I didn't want to go to school. I mean, kids can be cruel sometimes because we didn't speak English. Someone would try to talk to me. I had no idea what they were saying, you know. So they were like, "Oh, you don't talk." You know, just kids. When I came here in high school, I also struggled. I didn't didn't want to do presentations in my other classes. I didn't want to read out loud because I knew I couldn't or my accent, you know, it's really thick, but it was worse back then. So, even though they're more accepting, you still feel that you're not you're not a part of it. And even though I was more open in this high school, I still feel isolated from everyone else. couldn't take regular classes like other kids took. And I couldn't take any sports because my mom didn't have any money for that. So I was going to school, going home, and I worked. That was when the problem started because I knew I wasn't legal. I knew I couldn't work like everyone else. So I kind of started getting angry because even though I was treated normal as a kid, I wasn't while I was getting into my adult years. I couldn't do what everyone else could do. I couldn't get a driver's license at 16. I couldn't vote. I couldn't get a job, or at least a good job. So that's when my mom, you know, explained to us that we were not like everyone else, that we were illegal, and the only way I could work was through getting fake papers. And I got them, and I worked as a dishwasher for a while, I worked about forty five hours a week, and that's when my mom left. I thought I had the support to go to college, at least I wouldn't have to pay for rent, so I knew that I was only working towards going to college, towards paying my tuition, but my mom decided to leave because she just she couldn't she couldn't do it anymore, not here. At 18, you know, you're only a kid. I had to find out how to do everything for my own. And once Obama approved the DACA Act, I went back to school. And I was an in-state tuition student. And I I can get a driver's license, um, but I cannot vote. And I cannot get loans. And that's in only 18 states. Not all states have approved it. Other states, you can only work. So Massachusetts was one of the states that did approve it, which I'm thankful for. um I don't feel like i'm I'm an outsider anymore, but I am, and it's you know, and people just see me as someone else, but they don't know my story, they don't know who I am. They suppose that I am just like them because I carry conversations like them, and I go to school every day, and I'm like them. But I'm not. So I think I feel I feel American. I feel like I am from here, just without the documents to prove it.
3: That was Angelica Marino Monje. Angelica continues to speak out about the challenges of being undocumented and encourages fellow dreamers to be open about their situations. Brian Torres's escape from El Salvador was also harrowing, but unlike Angelica. He had to make the crossing with complete strangers. His mother had left El Salvador when he was very young in order to find work in the United States. It was when Brian was 12 that he was finally reunited with her here. Although a strong student in El Salvador, Brian saw his grades slip dramatically as he struggled to learn a new language here. Between that setback and his lack of documentation, Brian had all but given up hope of attending college. Then he received some timely and life-changing encouragement. Here's Brian Torres.
0: So I come from El Salvador. I lived there for 12 years. I grew up over there with my grandmother due to the social and political problems and economic problems in El Salvador. My mom had to come here when I was only one year and a half. She had to leave me and my two other siblings, which are older than me. She decided to come here in order to provide us with a better future. Five years after she left, she was able to raise enough money in order to bring us back with her, because she missed us so much. I was like six and a half, I think I was. And at that age, I didn't remember her. So I actually thought she wasn't my mother. I thought my grandmother was my mother. My brother and sister, they remember her, and they were so excited to come with her. And I was like, there's no way I'm gonna go. I was very young to make such a huge decision. But my mother, um, she didn't want me to be unhappy or she knew how hard the traveling from El Salvador to the United States is by land. So they decided to leave me there with my grandmother and my two siblings came to reunite with her. When I was 12, there was two earthquakes that happened in El Salvador and they were in 2001, one month apart from each other. And that was really traumatizing for me, like see how the houses just were torn apart hearing in the news how like some houses had just fell down and like people just died and I was really traumatized so I I started seeing a psychologist and the psychologist helped me understand the the reasons why my mother left and she helped me like understand the life struggles and then that's when I was able to like connect with my mother and like I would talk to her on the phone. My grandmother was going to come here to the United States because she was getting in the process of getting her green card, and I was afraid that she was going to leave me again and that it was going to be another person living in my life. So I told, I called my mother, I think it's time for me to go and reunite with you guys. That's when I left El Salvador. The whole trip took about three weeks, and it wasn't legal for me to come here, but I just thought that that's what people had to do to come to the United States. Just come by land and like, It was very, very difficult, like, traveling through Guatemala, through Mexico, crossing, like, all the small towns, all all the cities. We had a guide, a person that was guiding us. I remember we were in the border of Mexico. We had to learn how to speak like a Mexican when we were there because in order to pass and not get caught. So we just kept going from car to car, from bus to bus. I remember we had to stay in one part of Mexico for a week because... There was nobody to guide us, so we stayed at some person' house. It was scary because sometimes we would travel like in a car for 24 hours, and then we would get into places that I I don't even know, like if they were safe or not. You don't know what's gonna happen to you tomorrow. And being 12 years old, there's a lot of changes happening to like just mentally and like even physically. That it's difficult. After a few weeks of traveling. We finally made it to Southern Texas border. They took us to a river that we had to cross, and they told us, oh, you made it to the United States. Now just go, and maybe they'll catch you, but you're in, in the mainland, so they can't deport you because you're a kid or something like that. That's what they said. It was only the underage people that they did that with, and some people that were with them, and we were like, we don't even know how to speak English. So, we crossed the river. we went into it was a golf course. We changed our clothes, we left our old clothes behind and started walking in the middle of that golf course and like there were some people like dressed very, really, really nice, like rich people playing golf. They were just looking at us like, "What are they doing?" and we just kind of like smiled to them and then we just started walking. We got out of the golf course, and that's when this truck tapas and that was the immigration officers that had caught us and they were like uh, what are you guys doing the only thing i knew how to say was like i am from el salvador <laughs> and that's what i said to them oh I, I am from el salvador and then they tried speaking english and and we like no like no comprende no no sabemos and then then you guys you guys have to come with us they they, they spoke spanish too and they brought us into these small like jail looking places And they interview us, they ask us where we were going, they ask us the information of our family in the United States, and they actually contacted my mother, and my mother was really scared because she didn't know what, what was happening to me, and they were really, like, rude. Like, they were screaming at me, and they were, like, being very, very mean. It's almost, like, dehumanizing the way they treat you. They talk down on you, and, like, that's where I, like, started crying, and I told them that I had, like, a panic attack. I kept crying because I was so scared. So in Texas, it was difficult to, like, even buy a bus ticket since we didn't even spoke English. So we had people, like, helping us. There was people that gave us food. I crossed from Texas to Los Angeles, so we passed Arizona. There were some times that they would stop the bus and they would ask for documents. I was like, I don't have any documents. So I just showed them the, the papers that the immigration officers told me to show them. When I finally made it into Los Angeles, I was so sick and tired of traveling by bus. It had been like three weeks of not knowing what was gonna happen. And like, when I got off the bus, I finally like met my mother. And that was really, really um, beautiful moment because I didn't remember seeing her in person. So I just jumped on her and hugged her and like, we both start crying. And then we took a flight to Massachusetts and that's where I and I were my brother and my sister. I was put in seventh grade, and the first day that my mother dropped me off, I was really, really nervous because I didn't really know what what was going to happen. I remember entering the school, and, like, everybody was speaking English. Everybody was talking to people, and, like, like I tried to speak to people, and, like, they couldn't understand me. The only person that spoke Spanish was two other kids from my grade, one teacher, and it was just very, very difficult. Trying to learn the school, trying to learn math, trying to learn social studies, trying to learn to learn science. it was just so difficult to be like in the middle of like a group of people that don't really know your language. You don't really know what to do. I used to carry like like a little translator with me at all times. Sometimes when I read books, I used to translate word by word, like trying to learn as quickly as possible so that I could like talk to people and like learn what I was supposed to learn and get good grades because that was one of the most shocking, saddest moments of me immigrating here when I, like, started getting, like, bad grades. My first year that I was here, I had, like, C's, D's. I had really, really bad grades. To me, that was really bad grades because in El Salvador, I was always among, like, the top students, and then I get here, and, like, I was just doing bad. I was just like, oh, my God, how am I going to solve this problem? Like, So the first and second year of high school, even though it was easier for me to understand the English, I didn't try as hard. I focused more on, like, working and didn't really care about school because I knew I wasn't going to go to college. It wasn't until senior year of high school that I saw, like, everybody was so excited about going off to college, going to these, like, so prestigious universities, and I was like, I wish I could do that, and I wish I could go to college. I started doing research, and I was like, Actually, if I go to, like, a community college and there, maybe I can transfer to a four-year school, that would actually give me financial aid, even if I'm undocumented. And that's where I, like, took all my money savings. And right after high school, I signed up for class at Holy Community College. Even though I had to pay out-of-state tuition, like, I was working two jobs, going to school full-time, and paying for my own education, and that was... That was really challenging. Like, sometimes you don't have time to focus on your homework and focus on your work. And also, because I was undocumented, I couldn't drive. So getting from Florence to Holy Community College was always one of the biggest struggles. Like, sometimes I had to walk two miles to get to the bus stop, because that, that was the closest bus stop, then take two buses. That would take two hours. Because I was paying for my own education, that's where I start caring more about getting good grades, trying really hard, working really hard, learning as much as I could. And my first semester at Holy Community College, I saw this flyer on the wall that said, interested in transferring to, and there were a bunch of colleges listed. It was like um, UMass, Amherst, Amherst College, Hampshire College, Smith, Mount Holyoke, Cornell. There was like a lot of different names of colleges. And then he said, go visit this person at this time, which it was Irma Medina, who after I went to visit her, she was like, oh, yeah, like a student just got into Amherst College last semester. So you could definitely do it. And that's where I like start working extra hard to get those grades, to take more classes and to become like like a qualifying applicant for Amherst College or Hampshire College, because that's where I wanted to go. go, Because like I knew those colleges would offer financial aid for documented or DACA students. For those who are coming here, one of the things that I recommend for them not to like internalize any type of discrimination that they face because the more you internalize discrimination and the more you like close your, your possibilities, those people that think just because I'm undocumented, I can't do this, I can't do that, I won't be able to do this, I won't be able to do that. No, you have to always think of yourself. Yes, there's a possibility that I can do this. Even if it's something that like, you consider something very, like, difficult to get or obtain. It's all about, like, fighting for your dreams in
2: order to, like, make them a reality. That was Brian Torres. Brian is currently a student at Amherst College and aspires to work in media as a way to illuminate the challenges of being undocumented. We also heard from Angelica marino Mohe. Angelica is a student at Holyoke Community College. She hopes to continue her education and to work with immigrants like herself. It was Angelica and Brian's stories and the support that they received from Holyoke Community College that led us to establish the Words in Transit Scholarship for immigrant students attending Holyoke Community College. Proceeds from the sale of the Words in Transit book benefit the scholarship fund. You can help students like Angelica and Brian by purchasing a copy of the book from the University of Massachusetts Press. Education is an important theme in many of our Words in Transit stories and next time, we'll hear two stories on the transformative power of education. You can see photographs of everyone we interviewed and hear their stories online at nepr.net, where you can also learn about upcoming Words in Transit events. Coming up, we'll be in Amherst, South Hadley, and Hartford. You can also invite us to your community. You can also find information about all of NEPR's podcasts at nepr.net or on iTunes. The Managing Director of Words in Transit is Temis Silk. The producer is Kathleen O'Keefe. And we had help on this podcast from Sara Redegieri. I'm John Vosey. Thank you for listening. Words in Transit is a production of New England Public Radio in collaboration with the Copeland Colloquium at Amherst College.